do you guys have headphones or you just uh, listen through your computer speakers? I'm raw dogging it, man. No headphones. <laughs> Free earing. <laughs> Free earing. Free lobing. <laughs> All right, well, thanks for joining us today on uh, the much-anticipated return of the Film Nerds Roundtable. We haven't had one of these in a long time. It might have been last summer, actually. But uh, today we are going to be uh, assembling here to talk about Super 8. We've got, a, we've got a, a pretty good posse on the line here. I've got with us, uh, joining us from Destin, Florida, we have on the line Ben Flanagan and Graham Flanagan. Guys, thanks for joining us. Thanks sure. for having us. And uh, all the way from Huntsville, Alabama, we have Ben Stark joining us for the first time in, in quite a while. Hey. And also new to the podcast format, but you guys have seen him on the on the blog already a couple of times, uh, we have Citizen Craig, Craig Hamilton with us today, joining us for the first time on the podcast format. So thanks for joining us, Craig. Thank you. All right. Well, guys um, – uh, I want to I want to try my best to sort of avoid I guess going over or I, I, maybe maybe if some of you guys have heard the Cinematrimony podcast at this point already maybe uh, we can we can touch on some of the criticisms in there because I was I I've had an almost you you know completely positive reaction to this movie but I do want to hear some you know some criticisms if there are any out there and Francesca definitely shared some on the Cinematrimony uh podcast and I, I guess I want to start off by saying um does anybody feel like this movie disappointed them or didn't live up to uh the hype that I guess was sort of set at least you know it's hard to say that this movie was overly hyped because it, a lot of people think it came in pretty quiet but uh let me let me start with um with the Flanagans and ask you guys, um, what do you, how did this movie, you know, dealing with all the, the expectation that you've had at this point when you saw it, did this movie live up to what you were expecting? I would say that it lived up to about 75% or so of the hype. And there was disappointment in there, but I think that the good definitely outweighs the bad. And I think JJ Abrams does establish somewhat of an original voice here, even though uh, the consensus and the correct consensus, I think, is that he is hearkening back to the days of early Spielberg. And I think he establishes that feel very well for most of the movie. But I think, and I don't want to speak for Graham here, but he might share uh, part of this opinion. I do think that when we get to, and this is going to be a spoilerific review, isn't it, Matt? Yeah, we'll go ahead and say this is not a spoiler-free review. If you haven't seen the movie, probably want to tune out at this point. Well, when we get to the big reveal of what this movie has been hinting at during its entire marketing campaign, there was some disappointment for me, and that lands squarely on the alien, the monster that we see. And I think that it just brought back too many memories from Cloverfield, and I felt like there were too many similarities between this monster and that one. There were times where I just thought, honestly, this is the same, this is the same character the same uh, concept that we're sort of dealing with here, just in a different setting and a different time period. I almost felt like the stories kind of overlapped in a way. And I think that there might be an argument that it might 
even. But once we saw it, and I, I was, I'm always a big fan of uh, staying mysterious when you've been mysterious like this throughout your entire marketing campaign. And when there is this much buildup, you're almost destined to be disappointed. But for me, it comes down to the execution just in terms of the overall design and how it's used in the movie. Where the movie completely worked for me was with these characters and these children. These, these are some of the best child actors I've ever seen. And I think Abrams used them beautifully. I thought that they felt completely real. They talked like kids talk at that age. I thought that the, the period design was great. It looked incredible. Uh, there are so many things that work about this movie, but honestly, the main one is the dynamic between those kids and the fact that we can totally root for uh, Joe, this young kid who's just played wonderfully by an actor. I, I'm not sure what his name is, but um, it just feels like that's working so well. And once we finally get around to this alien business, I feel kind of bad that we have to leave that story. Yeah, I agree with Ben. Uh, you know, I think that J.J. Abrams has proved with this and in previous projects, namely Lost, that he is great at creating suspense and creating a universe that you, you want to be a part of and, and enter. Um, but he has been unable with this movie and with Lost, namely, to succeed <laughs> in resolving the suspense. Uh, you know, and again, it... it it came down to, again, it was just a creature. And the creature itself looked like the Cloverfield monster got it on with the Fallen from Transformers 2. And then he took off in the ship at the end that looked like uh, just, you know, a, a uh, an abandoned version of Eric Bana's spaceship from Star Trek. So I was disappointed in, in the way that the story, in the story itself. But I thought that, again, like Ben said, the universe was fantastic. And, and he got, he, he's obviously a director of actors and is is uh, very talented at creating the world, but as far as uh, bringing it home and finishing, he is has yet to impress me. Well, Ben Stark, I want to. I don't know if if, if you feel um, uh, this way about a movie that that Francesca referenced Signs when we were talking about this movie, and, and just in that the sort of common criticism of Signs being that it's got this really powerful emotional drama in there and basically the the common complaint about it was once you actually have to deal face to face with the with the specific sci-fi story elements that it was really disappointing to people and it didn't seem to to be uh consistent i guess with with what was happening with the characters the rest of the movie which is what made it so interesting first of all i I don't know if you even feel that way about signs but i want to ask you do you feel like there's this duality here in the movie do you feel like there's uh, there's parts, you know, as far as the, the personal drama stuff working significantly better than than the action stuff. I mean, what what, what do you feel about that idea that this is two movies almost? Um, well, I think I think that's I think there's a strong case to be made for that. Um, just because, I mean, I, I, from what I've read, um, Abrams originally, I don't think there were any science fiction elements in the initial pitch they talked to Spielberg about. Um, I think uh, he just kind of eventually stumbled upon the fact that uh, there'd be a really it'd be neat if there was a central mystery and if it was, if it, it was this creature. Um, so it was basically the, the story needed um, kind of a bigger thrust. And, and that's kind of where that came in. Um, so I think, I, 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 I do think that it's clearly like this is, um, it, it, it might be intentional, it might not be, but yeah, I agree that it feels like a, 
a creature feature is kind of invading Stand By Me, you know. That's actually, uh, that was specifically mentioned in, yeah, in the Cinematrimony podcast. Too. Yeah, and I, yeah, I listened to the show and I, I, I kind of agree with uh, a lot of things you guys said, especially, uh, honestly, once the movie got rolling, I, I was getting a lot more vibes of signs than I was any early Spielberg um, because of the, the father-son dynamic. Um, uh, so, I, yeah, I, I, could, I can see that. Um, I, think, I think the sci-fi does really work here. I, I think I disagree with, with, uh, with the fact that it was disappointing. Um, I felt like it was the creature was nicely and slowly built up, and then when we saw it, it, it yeah, it wasn't anything – that I hadn't seen before, and I, I think there might be some kind of connection to Cloverfield. I think there is kind of this loose universe um, that they're kind of working in, and I, I think even I, I think there's like Dharma Initiative um, <laughs> logos. Is there really in Cloverfield? I think in Cloverfield there are. So the idea that this and Cloverfield and Lost are all somehow very loosely related, almost like a Tarantino universe, um, I, I think I think there might be something might be something there so if there's a similarity that uh, that might be valid but i do think there was a, a i think there was a, a pretty big contrast and i thought it, the the idea of the monster being kind of not just yeah he eats people and he's uh, uh, and he's aggressive but he's also uh, there's the the fact that he makes a connection with people by touching them and then that sets up the motivation for his escape um, I think that's pretty interesting. That's something I, I felt like I hadn't seen before or, or heard before. Um, and I, 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 I like the, the end moment um, where he wasn't like White Fang or something where it was this like noble creature. It was just like, yeah, he's still eating people. He still right. he just needs to get the F out of here. Like, that, let's that, get him, help him get out of here. Yeah, see, that's the uh, thing I couldn't really get past, by the way, was that, that you know, there is this sort of like, if we only understood one another, it would all be okay. But then you remember, like, he was totally eating a dude at one point earlier in right. the movie. Right, and he eats well, somebody right after that. Right. Um, from what I remember. But I think well, I, one thing you guys talked about in the in the podcast was something – maybe I missed it. Um, probably you guys missed it, I'll be honest. But, um, like, <laughs> that was supposed to be a joke. Yeah. Um, the, the, the reason <laughs> – the reason uh, – just insulting you guys. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> the the I think the reason that he gets out of there after that isn't because he gets like the gumption to believe in himself and leave. <laughs> I think he's been building some sort of electromagnetic field with all the electronics, and it just all kind of comes to a head at that moment. I think it might be more of a coincidence than uh, a breakthrough moment for the alien. Does this not remind anybody else of District Nine of the aliens? Ju- they just mm. you were sympathetic for them because. They just want to get out. They're not here on purpose. They just want to leave. Yeah, I think I think there's something similar there. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. Go ahead, Ben. That's it. Well, Craig, I want to I want to bring you into this and and ask you because I think just gathering from from uh, reading your stuff before, I think you're, you're you seem like you're pretty well versed in in J.J. Abrams' work, at least for the most part. I, probably his, his TV work. Certainly, but probably most of his film work too. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, I, I've at least seen him. Yeah. Well, let me let me just ask you, as far as you know, uh, I guess there, there's this there's this sort of um, prevailing opinion out there now that we're starting to hear of of that that J.J. Abrams is becoming the next 
Spielberg, and that's a title that we've heard on other people before, and we've already mentioned it in the show that uh, this comparisons to M. Night Shyamalan, that was his thing for a long time. People were saying this is the next Spielberg. Yeah, it was on the cover of Time. Right. And, uh, you know, I guess let me, let me just ask you, Craig, to, you know, based on other things that you've seen in the rest of Abrams' work, TV and movies, uh, I mean, is this, is this that much of a departure from what he normally does, do you think? Or is this kind of in line with, with the rest of the, uh, of his career, I guess, to date? It seems, it seems like this has suddenly made people jump out and say, next Spielberg, but I, I don't know, do you feel like this is a departure for him? Well, yes and no. Yes, because, you know, a lot of his TV work and, you know, Mission Impossible 3 and, you know, Star Trek, they're all kind of, you know, at least the movies were based on other previous installments of something else. And his TV stuff is just kind of like extremely creative, unique, uh, original. Um, but this one, it, this I feel like it's, uh, it's uh, nostalgic homage-ish. Um, if that's a word and, but, but I feel like, uh, you know, the, the next Spielberg, I mean, he's the closest thing to Spielberg. I think we have right now. And the next in that Shyamalan has completely turned into an insult. Uh, as far as I'm concerned at this point in time. Um, but uh, I, I will say that I, I was, if I'm honest with myself, um, slightly disappointed just because of the amount of hype that I went into it with, but that's my fault. It's not his fault. He didn't come out and say he was trying to make the next ET. <laughs> I told myself that. Um, I well, think, I don't know. Uh, is, I mean, is that fair to say? Because I think, I mean, it, look. It was marketed that way. It was definitely marketed like the next ET. And I think I think a lot of the, the disappointment that we seem to be running into with, with everybody here, but also with, you know, Francesca felt the same thing, and I think we probably have seen some of that reaction on the Internet too. Um, if this movie had come out of nowhere and we were all the first people to ever see or hear of it, um, I don't know that we'd be having the same reaction. I think a lot of this does have to do with um, that this is a movie that was marketed to people like us. It was marketed to people who uh, want to see uh, you know, somebody attempt to make an 80s Spielberg movie again and – you know whether it's it's just it's just kind of interesting to me to see that uh, to me watching it I enjoyed it a lot more um, you know being sort of in the moment with it I was really really uh, positive and I think only afterwards and sort of coming out and talking about it later did I start to have gripes with it I don't know I mean it, what was your what was your you know Ben I know you you said you're sort of seventy five percent on it but you know, did you feel like in the moment watching the movie, were, were there ever goosebumps? Was it working for you while you were watching it? Absolutely. And I think where the movie may have fallen short in terms of reconciliation, say, with the son and the father or with the alien, um, I think that the moment where Joe lets go of the locket, I guess, the big emotional payoff of the movie. I think that totally worked, and I felt it. And honestly, again, when we're spending time with those kids and even the early moments between uh, Joe and his dad and uh, Alice, I think it, they're fantastic. Um, but for me, I think that, uh, you know, 
Abrams really goes for this cathartic moment between the kid and the alien when they're face to face. And he says, bad things happen. Right. Um, and then we have these moments where these characters say things like, I saw what he sees. I feel what he feels. I mean, that, that (laughs) all it did was really remind me of Bill Pullman in Independence Day saying that (laughs) he gets grabbed by the alien. It's the same thing. We've seen that before. Um, to me that all of that was just kind of a great example of, fixing something with a line of dialogue it doesn't it's kind of a cop-out it's a shortcut it didn't really do anything for me and you know i don't i don't want hold on doesn't doesn't them feeling something with the alien set up the entire plot of the movie because that's why dude money crashes the train into the the truck into the train yeah right i I agree i agree stark and i but i also think i think that some of the you know, and I, I sort of try to have this debate with Francesca too, but that it, yes, it is kind of the main uh, driving element of the sci-fi portion of the movie. But to me, the the what the kids are going through through still feels so separated from all of that um, the alien storyline. It doesn't feel like they're they're necessarily tied together all that much. Well, I just thought it was kind of a weak crutch to say. Well, I, I feel what he feels, and all he wants to do is leave. He's sad, and he's angry, and he's confused, and he just wants out of here. It's like, all right, well, the alien didn't really uh, serve much of a purpose for me other than destroying things and wanting to leave the planet. I think the strength of this story is with this child who has lost his uh, mother and this father who has lost his wife and the distance that that has created between father and son. And I thought that that is what deserve that moment of catharsis and where you have where, where I think Abrams uh, was successful with the son. I think the father completely came up short and I think Kyle Chandler's a fantastic actor and I'm a huge fan of Friday night lights and his characters are very similar here, but you see him basically playing detective throughout this entire movie, going from place to place and figuring out what this, what the, uh, the, the air force is doing with this project. But at some point in the movie, we just completely, uh, lose track of him, and we stay with the child, and then by the end of it, uh, all we really see is the father drive up on the children, and then they reconcile it, yeah. and they're, uh, you know, they hug, and that's about it. He says, I yeah. got you, and it's like, well, the kid did all the work, buddy. I mean, you, you found him, but, you know, he, he sort of found you, I guess, in a way. Um, I'll, I'll, he helped, he helped actually, in his escape from the prison, so. <laughs> Say what? I said he elbowed a henchman in his escape from the prison. <laughs> That's yeah, true. That I, was pretty I hardcore. Was, I think he was a pretty strong a- action character up until the very end. I'll agree with you though that they they could have really, um, it, yeah, he did just kind of like end up at the central location at the end. Yeah, um, I felt like there was something there was something there that was missing between him getting um, the girl's father and him showing up at the end. I felt like there. That, that I, I really think that's all that arc really needed was like one extra thing to make him realize, okay, I need to go there and end up there, or I know, you know what I'm saying? I guess it kind of makes sense that they're all kind of going to the middle of town, but that's kind of a stretch. I don't know. Hey, hey Stark, you had kind of a, um, a screenwritery sounding comment on Twitter uh, <laughs> the other day, uh, basically after we all had first seen this movie. I want to I ask you – to clarify it, but you you said you had a beef with the movie and that you thought it could be fixed with a single line of dialogue. And I was wondering if you can get specific about that. And do you remember what you were talking about? Yeah, yeah, that's that's exactly it. Like if they if they had somehow connected the fact that Kyle Chandler, after he gets 
after he gets her, like he gets her dad. Um, I, I'm assuming to fill in kind of the story and kind of what's going on uh, and where they can go. But they're, they're, I feel like I'm missing something like how they, how they went from reconciling in the car, which meant something to just kind of showing up at the end, like Ben was saying. Um, I feel like there could have been an extra line of dialogue or an extra scene or something there to really bring give Kyle Chandler a reason to end up where his son is, other than just like, well, look, there's where you know everything. I mean, I, I that's the only thing I can imagine is that then, it's supposed to be then visual. That's, but. I'm sorry to interrupt you, um, but yeah, I thought I thought that the car the car moment was a nice moment. I thought that that I, I felt that and I it, it felt truthful, but. And again, I thought that the locket moment there at the end was nice, and they were all these were all sprinkled uh, throughout the movie, and they they worked totally. And I think Abrams gets deserves all the credit for that. But again, like I said before, the big moment I think should have come between the son and the father, both of them accepting what they've lost and what now what they have together. And I just never really felt that, and I think that that was really the the through line of this movie. Uh, that deserved Abrams' attention, and again, I think that's where they fell short. Well, also, and, and also, there was a a scene early on where they're at dinner together, the the father and son, and you see the father kind of uh, pushing him to to abandon his dreams of working with his friends on the movie, and to instead go to baseball camp. Um, and we never really saw the father embrace his son's dreams. And kind of say, you know what, this is who you are, and I see, I see now why uh, this is what you care about. And lim- and this is what I think is the the major. Uh, m- this is my biggest problem with the movie. You know, the movie's called Super Eight, so I had kind of hoped that it would all come back to that. It would all come back to the movie itself that they were making. And I thought they had a big chance to do this when they sent that camera falls down when this train accident is happening, and there's this this push in on that camera and we have to wait because it takes three days for that film to be developed. We have to wait three days to find out what was on that film. And so I was thinking, man, we're waiting these three days. I kept thinking in the back of my mind that we're going to see what's on that film. And really all it was is we saw a sliver of this alien crawling up the side of the train and it wasn't, it wasn't anything, you know, it was, it was, it didn't push the story in one direction or the other. It just kind of confirmed what everyone thought at that point which was oh it's an alien but i wish that they would have uh that jj abrams would have used that device to you know have a, a more creative or interesting uh you know kind of tangent for the story to take but yeah i, th- I think that's the, the one of the main weaknesses or flaws of the film is that it didn't come back around and reconcile itself to the title of the film and like you said they got like an excellent opportunity to have that film be a, a legitimate plot device that that could just you know project the, the the film further along, and it just it kind of just putters out at that. And I was kind of surprised that it was just the little footage of the. I mean, of all things, it, I understand the impact of showing uh, a, a minimal part of some creature or alien or monster, uh, but they showed it quite a bit at the end on the actual film itself. But in the in the Super Eight uh, film that they got back, it just a little. It looked like a little spider crawling around. Well, uh, I, the one thing I do think as far as the, the way that the actual film, you know, obviously uh, ties in and, and is important here is I think the, all of the movie's best scenes and the most effective scenes to me were all taking place around 
the movie that they're making. And you can tell that, like like Stark mentioned, I think the story behind this is that this was this was two different scripts that were sort of smashed together uh, in an effort to get both of them made. But uh, no, I think it was it was one script that just took a took a they right just, turn. They dropped something into it, but but uh, you can really feel that these scenes built around the uh, you know the making of the movie. They just they felt like they had a lot more to them, and they were a lot more thought out and really probably the one that, that sticks out to me that was the most effective is uh, the scene where where Joe is is uh, I guess putting on the the zombie makeup onto um, onto the um, onto L Fanning's character yeah and uh, basically there's this sort of there's this moment where she's she's doing the zombie acting and he's just uh, completely enamored and and to me that was not only just great filmmaking right there but it was really great acting from both of the performers and graham i want to ask you specifically just to talk about uh the kid actors here because you can go so wrong with with kid actors and i felt like they all nailed it but particularly uh for for somebody who has not really seen l fanning i haven't watched somewhere yet it's it's sitting it's sitting downstairs in a netflix sleeve right now but uh, I was really impressed with her. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think she's a, she's going to be a star. Um, and she was great here. I think that they're two totally different performances. Uh, in somewhere, she's a child. She is just a, she, you know, she's probably 10 years old in that film. And she's a child. And here she's she's about to become a teenager. Um, I mean, she is a teenager. She's 14, but she's about to become a young woman. So, they're two totally different performances, obviously filmed pretty far apart from each other, I would assume, since, I don't know, you know, kids grow up, you know, pretty fast. But I thought she was wonderful. And, and uh, as far as the rest of the, the kids are concerned, that that is what made this movie for me. I want to see this movie again, you know, for the dynamic uh, between these kids, among these kids. Uh, I mean, especially the 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 actor, Martin, Smartin, hilarious, the director. The, the pyromaniac kid, these are just wonderful archetypes, uh, and, and it worked throughout the entire film, and that's it, it gave it a Goonies vibe, because in the Goonies, you know, every single one of those kids, and this this movie, unlike the Goonies, was a little more grounded in reality, um, and, and I, you know, I had so much fun with all of them, uh, and uh, yeah, and, and Elle Fanning, you know, it, it was interesting, because you're, you're watching the movie, and it's it's, you know, kind of a love scene, sort of, between to 14 year olds but as ben said earlier it's like that you found that's a moment of kind of truth there that everybody's been through and i thought again to to jj um, abrams credit you know that's something that i think uh recently that i've seen with with terrence malick and tree of life he's able to kind of capture these truthful moments that we've all been through um that was a, a real strength and then the conversation between the director and, and joe lamb about the girl you know i liked her well, no, she likes you. That angers me. That that's that is what makes this movie work. Um, you know, those moments, the real life moments. That's what that's what validates the cons- the comparisons to Spielberg. Those moments, the sci-fi moments. No, I, they those don't warrant comparisons to Spielberg because if you look at ET, if you look at Close Encounters, if you look at Raiders of the Lost Ark, you can take every single instance in each one of those movies, and you can say, you know what, you can question each one of them. There's an answer. For every one of those questions and in this movie you don't have an answer i think there are a lot of holes but as far as the moments uh, where you're talking about kids hanging out 
12 and 13 year old kids just hanging out and being themselves. That's where this movie is on point. I, I, I would take a tiny note with that, but I agree with everything else you said. <laughs> I would disagree that there's, that Spielberg's movies are airtight. I don't think there's any movie that's. Uh, I would say E.T., Close Encounters, and Raiders of the Lost Ark are all. How does Indy get to the island riding the sub? We're not talking about Indy. I think think they're tighter, though, Stark. And I think, really, that's a a beef that this is not the first time somebody said that about a J.J. Abrams property here. That I I mean, that's his thing, too, by the way, is he loves – I think – think, and that's the problem that people like me who have hated on the the way Lost wrapped up and – uh, and have complained about some of his other stuff that uh, he seems to he seems to not only not have a problem with not resolving uh, mythological questions, I guess, within his stories or or you know technical plot issues, but he almost uh, he he sort of ends up writing it off and saying, "Now, to be fair, this wasn't him. This was Damon Lindelof and and the the guys who took over Lost after him." But uh, this idea of well. Those kinds of things aren't important. They don't matter to the story, so we don't need to answer them. And it's more fun to just be asking questions. And I, I really don't like that as a as a fan. That could be it could be a problem that I have as a as a super nerd. You know, somebody who who actually likes when there's depth given to a story. And I want to I want to explore that beyond the movie sometimes. But um, you know, I think that's a really popular thing to say now with things like that as well. You're getting caught up in the details. That stuff doesn't matter to the story. And I, you know, I, I, don't I have a problem with that. I mean, maybe, the, maybe, I don't know, you might be pulling from a quote, but I don't think that's the idea. I think I think Abrams, who, by the way, is one of my favorite screenwriters with the Coen brothers, who also have plenty of very vague rambling yes, they do. movies yes. that, that you need a lot of, you need time and conversations to figure them out. And David Mamet, too. Uh, but I think... That that's that's what I like about those. I'll I'll cop to the fact that um, that Lost has so much, so many loose ends that it's impossible to kind of go back and gather. But I would say most everything else that Abrams has been involved with, he gives you the tools to figure out the story, that the, those details through conversations. They're, they're, it's all built to sit down and like hang out with friends and have coffee or ice cream or, in Graham's case, heroin. To kind of get together and just kind of talk and and piece together the story yourself. His job, in my opinion, as the screenwriter and the director, is to give you the the narrative thrust from point A to point B and give you the human story, just like they say in the movie, that you need the human connection. And I think it's our job as the audience to do a little bit of work later and piece everything together. And I think in Super 8 specifically, he gives us enough tools to do that. I feel like in um, in Super 8, as opposed to the other shows and movies mentioned, where there's vagueness or it's not completely airtight, I feel like Super 8 more tries to shoehorn in this sci-fi aspect of it, whereas the part with the kids is sheer perfection. Um, every time they jump the chain-link fence or put on their backpacks or yelled in each other's face, I couldn't help but think of Goonies or E.T. It was just, I mean, it couldn't have been... Uh, better as far as that goes but um the, yeah discussing the plot and the story and how it all folds back together i think in this case it's more of just uh, the alien the sci-fi aspect just it doesn't quite fit yeah i think i agree craig i think and that's the difference between what we were talking about before with with lost and and even you know certainly with with star trek which i think it's you know 
everything seems to come pretty naturally there. But but even even Alias, if you want to talk about Abrams' other TV stuff, there the the sort of super, spoil it for me. No, I won't. But the the, 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 the it's only the, been fifteen years. No, the, but the, the you know the supernatural aspects of any of that stuff. Uh, anything in there that requires explanation and isn't just straight character drama, um, it all seems to feel a little more natural in those other pieces than it does in Super 8. Uh, I, I'm just, not, you know, uh, for whatever reason, I think that's 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 kind of the the um, the consensus. I think we're hearing here is that it just doesn't just doesn't seem nope. to no. Well, not from Stark, I guess, but it doesn't. <laughs> it just doesn't seem to um, to flow into. Uh, all the other elements of the film quite as uh, you know quite as smoothly I guess as some of the other stuff that Abrams has done um, it, does anybody else I, I'm just going to kind of throw it open here but let, does me, it, let me let me jump in here yeah go ahead um, I think that J.J. Abrams established uh, about as rock solid of a foundation that you could have especially with these characters they're incredibly colorful and likable and I'll spend three hours with these people but I think that he basically gave them the wrong event. I think he just let the wrong things happen to them and um, sort of thrust them into a world that didn't really fit what they were doing or, or who they were or what they were about. I don't think he made a good connection. Like if you watch something like Jaws, obviously you have the Roy Scheider character, this ordinary person who's thrust into extraordinary circumstances and where extraordinary things are happening to him and his town. Obviously his mission is to save his town. I never really felt like Kyle Chandler or even the kid had a really just mission where we had to, you know, we had to really buy in to this this objective, this non-objective I guess they had. They basically just had to find out what was going on. And once the child is faced with it literally face to face, suddenly they make a connection, but I just didn't feel like there was enough buildup. And I, I just felt like, I mean, there was something in the small town and I, I think that they could have, they could have gone the supernatural route. I wouldn't have had a problem with that. But I think Ben, you made a great point earlier that at times for me in, in a major way, this feels like a creature feature invading something much bigger. And I felt like once they got down into the lair or, you know, the, the, the alien cave, it just felt like a B movie to me. It felt like a very ordinary uh, sci-fi action movie, and it lost a lot of the um, mystique, I guess, that it had uh, in, in the pace that it had going. And once, uh, you know, once Joe and the, the pyromaniac kid were down there doing their thing, it just, uh, it just felt a little cheaper. It was intense, it though. It was I, – I have to say that scene was – uh, very effective to me, just as far as the suspense of that scene but, goes. But 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 but, but uh, I'm sorry. Let me stop you. I mean, but when they when they walk up on all of the TVs and microwaves and lamps piled up on on top of each other, and when you see uh, the alien sort of grab a human like it's a candy bar, I mean, wasn't it just kind of ridiculous? Didn't you think well, this is kind of silly and stupid? No, I agree, and I I think that is that that's where it started to turn into. Uh, killer clowns from outer space. Yes, yeah, absolutely. When you see you had to have that. Upside down. Yeah, it was like eight-legged freaks or something. Yeah, I think you had to have that at that point because you'd seen the the alien off screen three times, like attack something. Each attack getting worse and worse. And you just crunch down on a bus and all that stuff. I think I think you needed a payoff where you actually see the shark. You know, as bad as it might look to you at the time. How well, hard would you guys have judged 
Jaws in 1975. The, the, I, I, I kind of agree with that. I don't know. Well, the, uh, we've talked about the alien a lot already, but I want to ask about another effect that um, that got criticized by um, by my better half here earlier in the week, which is the, the train crash itself, which was highly promoted in the trailers. We saw a little bit of it in the trailer. Um, she said the train wreck was over the top way too much um, to the point of being ridiculous. And I didn't really think about it at the time when I was watching it. I, I guess it's pretty over the top. I mean, I guess let me start asking you, Graham. Did the train wreck work for you? Is it too much? What do you think? No, it, I, I thought it worked for me. Uh, I, I honestly was more impressed by the version uh, that we saw in the, the original teaser trailer. Mm-hmm. But Which no, doesn't it doesn't appear at all in the movie, yeah. Right. You don't see that wheel turning or anything when the door gets blown off and the creature escapes. Uh, but that, you know, that, that trailer is a short film in and of itself. Um, but no, I, I thought it worked. I thought the sound design was excellent. Um, but very, very un-Spielbergian in that we, we – I thought that uh, Spielberg would have filmed that in a more naturalistic way. And what we saw was uh, a bunch of kids running around in a George Lucas-esque blue screen oh, environment with, with, Lucas. Uh, with fake CGI shards of, of train and metal raining down on top of them. And indefinitely creating situations where – in real life, in a in an early Spielberg movie, uh, these kids would have probably probably been killed with these kinds of explosions and levels of impact happening uh, as close the, uh, in in the with the proximity that they that they occurred. No, instead, have you seen Jurassic Park? They get crushed. That's not early Spielberg, Ben. No, instead, it's for War of the Worlds Spielberg instead of. Close well, that, that's actually a funny point that the her dad's car is made out of the same material that the minivan is made out of in War of the Worlds. There's that giant plane crash, like, right outside the house. Ben, yeah. not early Spielberg, Ben. No, I'm, I'm, hey, dude, I'm on your side here. I'm making fun of something. Early 2000s, right, throughout that entire... Yeah, the van, like, survives. And the same thing in Super 8. There's, like, a wreckage everywhere, as far as I can see. And then in the middle of it, there's this car that is... You know, I agree. I thought it would have been cool if she would have been like, if the car would have been destroyed, and that would have been like, oh god, what am I going to tell my dad? You know, that might have that might have worked better than right. just like you say, having the car unscathed. It would have been, created more conflict. Like, what do we do? How do we explain this? Well, look, I, I disagree with Graham in that it just looked like a bunch of CGI nonsense. I thought that it was very well executed. It was exciting. It was thrilling. I was in the moment, and like Ben Stark warned me before I saw it, it was very loud which is great for your theatrical experience. But I think it speaks to the larger point where you have this tremendous execution in this set piece uh, on the part of Abrams. I think that that probably came with the original pitch of the movie where he started from square one. Okay, you've got these kids filming this movie and this huge train crash happens and you don't know why. And so that's great. It's a great concept. But where do you go from there? Right. And I just think that once he takes it in the direction he takes it, that's when this movie just falters away from that original concept. That does not, seem, it does seem to be a moment, yeah, right there. Ben, I'm sorry, Ben Stark. I'm sorry I uh, yelled at you about that. You I thought, lost it. You lost it. Let's be honest. I thought you were trying to uh, group in Jurassic Park and War of the Worlds. They got her. really ugly for a second. Yeah, I'm, I am yeah. grouping Jurassic Park in with. How can you do that? There's almost 15 years apart, dude. Okay. We're talking, about, we're talking about like. Pre nineteen eighty four, okay. 
right. That's I don't really, really care about like the technical specifications of your criteria <laughs> for like the perfect. I don't understand. In fact, this actually, this really Spielberg. This brings up this brings up a good point. The whole the whole Spielberg thing. I understand that that's a great marketing ploy, and there there is a certain Goonies um, Close Encounters vibe here, uh, but I. I I think it's a bad idea to try to try to pretend like this is just a cover song. Yeah, when, do we, when does this become J.J. Abrams' movie and not Spielberg's? And I think you also have to look at this like the like you would The Goonies or Back to the Future or another Spielberg-produced movie and not necessarily like one he would have directed. He it might has, have been, Yeah, it has a I whiff of Spielberg. But it's, I think from the opening scene, um, not the opening shot, but like the first full scene, I, I, that's as soon as I felt like it was an Abrams movie, or at least not a Spielberg movie. It's the middle of winter, and the perspectives were were kind of were much different than it would be in a Spielberg movie. I, I the comparison wasn't there for me very much at all, except for you know maybe a crane shot or a tracking shot here and there at sunset. Oh, I think like, that I think that that suburban feeling. Yeah, and Ben, I don't know if you agree with this, but I think that there are definitely elements that uh, are almost identical to some of the things that Spielberg. Uh, would use in his movie some of the devices like when Joe is in his uh, buddy's house with his family and those kids are just being loud at the table and banging on the table with the baseball bat. I mean, that reminded me of something straight out of Close Encounters where you're around Roy Neary's family. I think he got that. I think he meant to, and now it's successful. But I think think that this is a a J.J. Abrams experience, and I think that this is – you know, and I, I do think that it's unfair to basically go through a Spielberg checklist and mark off what he got right and what he got wrong. Yeah, and I think, I don't know, more of it it reminded me of just life in the the 80s more than life in the 80s in the Spielberg movie. I agree. I definitely, I think that that busy kind of annoying family is definitely a takeoff of Close Encounters. But what's more interesting than that is something that uh, Francesca and, and Matt talked about, which is the that that family dynamic and then in the midst of that the kids each still having their own little trajectories and their own little worlds that somehow this chaos isn't invading that and i think that is such an american 80s feeling uh more it's almost more like you know the simpsons or or some kind of other kind of staple of like 80s middle america than it is any specific spielberg thing yeah and i can as as somebody who's watched Mm -hmm a lot of 1983 movies in the last year. I can attest to the fact that Spielberg did not have a monopoly on uh, the domestic life in the 1980s. But um, I want to I want to talk a little bit for a second about audience reception outside of people on this podcast and, and just talk about kind of the commercial success that this movie is or isn't having or will or won't have. And uh, so far, um, so far it's, it's already passed – 40 million and you know I guess sort of the goals for this movie you know the the benchmarks for what would have made this movie considered a success have has kind of been a moving target and I've read differing accounts of what is supposed to be successful for this movie and what's not the production budget was 50 million dollars they didn't really spend a lot on marketing supposedly from what I've read Um, uh, let, let me start asking you Craig you know, what do you feel like uh, this movie's potential is, I guess, going into the second weekend? Because, you know, it, it's not a huge weekend for a summer blockbuster, and that's not surprising. There's no stars in it. Um, you know, the, the biggest star name on the poster for sure is Steven Spielberg. 
Um, you know, I guess, Craig, what do you think about uh, this movie's chances of kind of hanging around all summer and becoming a, a phenomenon, or is it gonna is it gonna peter out as soon as the next big thing comes along? Yeah, it's a it's a good question. I, I kind of lean towards that it might peter out only because the actual theater I was in, I mean, it might have been half full, and I was really surprised. But I understand that this kind of movie gears more towards the you know more the film buff type people. But I think if if the more critical voice comes out, that of course fewer people will go see it as the weeks go by. Unfortunately, I, I never really expected it to make the 300, 350 or higher, I guess. But I don't, I don't see it making much more than 150, just a shot in the dark. Graham, what do you think about uh, this movie's chances? I mean, we got, we've got Green Lantern coming up this weekend. There's, you know, there's nothing really that would be considered direct competition for it after that until probably Transformers in July. Um, I mean, what, do you, what are your thoughts? I mean, I don't want the movie to fail, but I think that this was J.J. Abrams' chance to do what Spielberg did with E.T., where you you don't have any stars and it's kind of an ambiguous story. You know it's sci-fi, but but the marketing doesn't really give anything away. And I think that anything below $200 million is a failure for this movie because this was, his, this was his chance using his brand status and the Spielberg brand status to create something that would generate word of mouth that would result in, you know, uh, weekend after weekend of, of 15 million, 20, 20, 15, 10, 12, kind of like what Bridesmaids has been doing. Uh, but I don't even think this movie's going to make Bridesmaids money. I think that after the first weekend, you know, the, the, the hardcore geeks went to see it, and it's going to kind of do what a comic book movie does, where the bulk of the audience has already seen it. And I don't think, because I think it disappointed so many of those people, you're going to see it fall off just like a, a kind of mediocre comic book movie uh, well, would do. I think the difference, though, here is, as opposed to let's talk about, let's say, Thor or something like that, is that this movie has really been quite well-reviewed. I mean, it, it's it's doing really well with the critics. Uh, it's gotten a lot of positive publicity. I mean, I don't know. Do, do you think that that's going to – Ben Flanagan, do you think that's going to make any difference for it? No, not really. Um, I kind of agree with these guys in that it will peter out. I think that there will be some good word of mouth, but I think uh, I don't know. I, I think that the 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 crowd is going to be a little too insignificant in terms of what kind of um, extra crowds it'll generate uh, as in the coming weeks. Like you said, it does have fairly weak competition because I don't think Green Lantern is really going to perform. I don't either this weekend, but. Um, you know, we were in a theater that, like Craig said, was uh, about half full, if not a little more, and there was not much of a reaction from the crowd. There were a few laughs here and there. There might have been uh, the occasional jump during a scary moment, but I didn't hear m- many people talking about it afterwards. Um, you know, other than other than the three of us who went and saw it, who I, who I would consider hardcore movie fans, uh, the the regular folks, I guess, that they just didn't really have much to say and. When you say that it didn't have much of a marketing push, I think we saw that uh, and we didn't really have to read about it. We just didn't see anything. There weren't many uh, TV spots that I could find. I didn't really see posters everywhere. And, um, yeah, man, I, I just think that the word of mouth will be positive generally from people because this is an extremely entertaining movie. But I just don't see I don't see there being enough people saying it because there weren't enough people there opening weekend. 
Thirty-seven million dollars for a summer movie is disappointing. Either, any way you cut it, uh, it's thirty-seven million dollars. That is. What if it was made for forty-five? It doesn't matter. I'm not talking about budget here. I'm talking about the numbers. Thirty-seven million dollars for a tentpole summer movie, which this is, is disappointing. Well, I, I don't know though. Is it is it the same? I mean, is it really going to be viewed the same way if it only cost fifty to make? Is it really going to be viewed with the exact same scale as far as uh, as far as the you know judging it one to one with with movies that cost two hundred and fifty million? When did you see the first trailer for this movie? A year ago. Yeah, a long time ago. Yeah. Right. The, the seeds were planted a long time ago. It did not work out. I think the uh, Midnight in Paris word of mouth is uh, stronger than the Super 8 <laughs> word of mouth. Yeah, that's a great point. That teaser was killer. All right, Graham, you, you said you were going to say something. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. So what? No, go ahead. Uh, I was, I was uh, listening to your Cinematrimony podcast with Francesca, and you guys were talking about what it was rated, what Super 8 was rated, whether it was PG or PG-13. <laughs> no, the, the, the debate was whether it was PG-13 or R, actually. What? Oh, come on. Yeah. Well, anyway, it's like uh, I think you guys were talking about, well, I remember a lot of bad language, and, and, you, and Francesca said there were no F-bombs. So I was like, what the fuck movie was she watching? <laughs> they do say it, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 It says it. Yeah. yeah. She's looking very she's she's looking across the desk at me right now kind of angrily. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I want to ask you guys Man. something. Quick and uh this doesn't really have to do with any of the themes or anything, just as a technical question. Um what did you guys think of Michael Giacchino's work here? And Graham, one of the criticisms Graham brought up is that this movie doesn't have a theme. There's no Super 8 theme, and Stark probably picked up on one, I'm sure. But I just wanted to know what you guys thought of the music here. I think there's a theme at the at the end, especially. I remember really enjoying it. I couldn't hum it to you right now, but I remember at the end of the movie during the, the locket sequence that there's a there's definitely a, a theme there. Too little, too late, man. Something, was that like, something? I, I, the I, T theme or Back to the Future theme came at the very end of the movie. Would you still call it the theme? <laughs> no, I mean it's it's I, there throughout I, the movie. That's yeah, just when I, I remember hearing it and going, "Okay, well, that's the theme of the movie." Yeah. I, I well, I will say this about the music. I thought that that there were some uh, going back to all the Spielberg references with the use of like the deep uh, brass and then the harp, especially, which was very uh, prevalent. I thought those were really nice uh, 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 musical references to John Williams. The, the theme is uh, actually pretty nice. Uh, the only place you can find it right now is I think is on the actual website. Um, but I also couldn't whistle it when I walked out of the movie. But honestly, I've never been able to do that for any movie theme. I, I, I couldn't could do it for Lord of the Rings, Ben. Not not after the first time I watched it. I mean, when I walked into Two Towers, I could because I'd been obsessively watching the first one. What about the Phantom, Ben? <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, you got me. Um, what? This is just going to be pick on Stark for the Did you say hum the theme podcast. song or read the script verbatim for my memory? <laughs> you got that uh, Phantom app on your iPhone, don't you? The script app. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, tell them about We looked up the, bo- the domestic box office for the Phantom earlier today. Ben, do you know what that is for, uh, off the top of your head? Did dust just come out of your like computer monitor? <laughs> 17 million domestic. <laughs> it only costs 16. Not off. <laughs> 
that's oh man. Now, did you guys? Uh, Graham won't know this, um, but what, did you guys who are fans of Lost notice those little Lost cues in the Super Eight theme? Those little ominous uh, string. Those you remember those Lost transition scenes, or when something kind of scary would happen, or when it would the, go to a commercial, it would have like, that kind of. Uh, sh- yeah, yeah, yeah. There were those moments in Super Eight. Did you guys hear that? I did not notice. I think I remember. I think I remember listening to some of it and thinking. Uh, I mean, I definitely was aware, not just from the credits, but I, I definitely was aware that it was a Michael Giacchino score. I mean, he's he's very strong when it comes to, uh, especially action. You know, scoring action sequences. I always feel like that's what he's. That's kind of what his, you know, area of specialty has become, and. Uh, I thought it was I thought it was really nice, and I think you guys are right to to point out that this is sort of, um, you know, John Williams e. But I guess that's always that that's probably always been the case a little bit with Chikino. Well, Matt, can I ask another question? Yeah, go ahead. Um, you guys are big fans of a lot of Abrams TV work. Uh, Stark, I know, is a big Felicity fan, uh, but he's had a lot of success <laughs> on television and now we've you know we've got three movies of his now as a a, as a director on the big screen here and i think that i mean you can't really argue that he's starting to find an identity uh on the big screen and as somebody who is in complete control of a feature film but do you think this guy has legs as someone who can work his way into becoming more of a brand than he is now somebody who can sell a movie without spielberg's name attached to it or do you think that his biggest strengths Still lie on television. I'm all, I think. The, oh, go ahead, Sark. <laughs> no, I feel idiotic for interrupting you. I was going to say the crimping in Carrie Russell's hair is a lot more convincing <laughs> than the crimping in Emma Stone's hair in The Help. Matt, you were saying. <laughs> Told you. I was just thinking about how I was going to edit out Stark inter- me interrupting Stark, and then I, now I'm definitely leaving that in. But uh, no, I think. I mean, I've always thought that other than Felicity, which I can't speak to, but from what little I've seen, I don't think it really, I think it is more of a, let's call it like a a WB drama, let's say that. But uh, no, I'm getting angry looks again. But I mean, other, you know, when you talk about Alias and Lost, those are two TV series that the reason they were such big hits is because they were really made with uh, as much sort of cinematic quality as possible they are they feel like movies when you're watching they feel like uh they have a production value that is not what you expect to see when you watch tv and they are they're action shows with special effects too which is also something you don't expect to see on tv and um you know ultimately i think it probably hurt alias a little more than lost because it became such an expensive show um that they you know they ran into some limitations but I mean, to me, that is kind of Abrams' thing, and I don't think it was an unnatural transition for him to go from TV to movies because his TV shows uh, felt very much like films anyway. And, and um, you know, we heard about – there was always discussions about both Alias and Lost eventually being sort of made into um, theatrically released films, and it would have made sense. Um, so, I mean, to me, it's not really um, – that big of a of a change for him and i i could definitely you know i, I think I, I do feel like so far with his film career when you look at mission impossible 3 and then star trek and then this um you know uh 
it, it seems like he's sort of starting to head in one direction, and I, I could see him. I could see him becoming a bit of a brand. I don't, you know, to to say he'll be like Spielberg is tough because I don't. I don't know that you'll ever see something exactly like that. But I I do think uh, he'll fall somewhere in between. Spielberg and M. Night Shyamalan, with Shyamalan being to the point where it almost becomes a parody of itself. I don't think Abrams will ever be boxed in like that. Um, but I do think he'll become a guy where people will be excited to see the next J.J. Abrams movie because he's the director. Yeah, I think um, I, I, I think in I'll compare him to Spielberg in, in, very, in a very limited way, in that if if somebody asked me what a movie looked like in you know 1980 the early 1980s i would say look at et uh or if if somebody asked me what a movie looked like in the 70s i would tell them uh look at taxi driver um and i think in 10 15 years if somebody says what what did movies look like you know in in the early 2010s i would say look at star trek i think he i think he's kind of like the torchbearer of like the modern kind of blockbuster style um he kind of takes the the high sheen kind of michael bay thing and actually distills it to something you can follow and actually feel uh, enriched by watching it as opposed to exhausted i just hope that he would i hope that he would uh, take a cue then from spielberg and and scorsese uh from those two specific movies and direct someone else's script yeah, yeah, I think. Well, he did that. No, I'm, am saying. From, I think that might have been super, the problem with Super Eight. Uh, oh, was, was and Taxi Driver were both written by different uh, entities. Well, I completely disagree with that, Graham, because he, he took a he took a uh, he might have taken a bad left turn in terms of um, the whole alien aspect of this movie, but uh, the fact that Abrams wrote the dialogue. Uh, that those kids said and that um, the other character said that the stoner, the brilliant stoner character said, I think that speaks volumes about his abilities as a screenwriter. And if he needs to collaborate with somebody who might have a better handle on how to introduce uh, an event like that to put those characters in, then that's something you might explore. But I think that as you know, someone who can uh, develop characters like these, he, he has a lot of strengths. Can, can I have a, a soapbox for just like a moment? I, a, I, I should play a little jingle that is the Ben Stark soapbox that we can have like every every um I'll, every roundtable no, podcast. It should be him whistling the theme from Super Eight, not <laughs> or the Phantom. Go ahead, go ahead though, man. Okay. I'm gonna go uh, to the bathroom real quick. <laughs> uh, well, I, I think uh, yeah, I think this is a fantastic script, and I I, I don't think I don't think we can compare the guy to. Scorsese and Spielberg yet. I don't think we should. Um, and I, he's made three, you know, feature films. So I, I, that's not kind of that's not really what I was getting at. But I, I do think uh, just overall uh, the the movie kind of I I was along for the ride. And I said this last week um, when I first saw it is that it felt like the first real movie I'd seen uh, all year. And I think a lot of that is because of the performances that we talked about and the fact that it's a it's a singular script and a singular idea. Um, and uh, I, I, it was really carried along with it. I think one thing that we might be missing is that that connective tissue between the military stuff and the kids stuff is that the kids stuff, the kids were so focused on what they were doing 
which is which is accurate that um, basically what was going on around them was just a backdrop until it basic until it completely intersected with what they were doing and appeared on the film that they were working on and then from there on they were completely a part of the mystery and I think also we might be missing the fact that the the dad the two fathers wrangling their kids is a lot like the government destroying that town uh, leveling it just to wrangle this this thing that they feel like belongs to them so I, I think there's I think there's a pretty strong tie between those three arcs. I do like uh, that connection there. That's that right there. That was some of the the heat that was I expect from of Ben Stark in a podcast. Did you guys not think it was hilarious, like almost hilarious how destructive the end? I mean, that town was gone. Right. I mean, that, there's like tanks driving over buildings and. <laughs> yeah, I think that's when it hit me is when there there's the scene where they're all uh, where the guy sort of says over the walkie-talkie like. Oh, the tanks are just firing at random. We can't control it. And then I'm... did you notice the bullets and the missiles? How they they would take these? Um, they weren't going in straight lines, right? But... Yeah, they were bending. Yeah, yeah that was awesome. But all the action stuff, like the, the and like the going back to, I'll, I'll agree with Ben Flanagan that the, the train wreck was was I thought really impressive and more impressive. Do you know that, that that teaser that they shot or that they made? That was all CG. And it was created like in April of 2010, and they didn't actually start shooting the movie until 2000, yeah, until the fall. Right. It was I made it was specifically real- as a yeah. as an ad. Yeah. I love that, and I love that that the movie doesn't take that perspective at all. Like the the train wreck in the movie completely sticks with the kids, whereas the teaser is all about you know like the high action, kind of following the truck, and then we see the door and everything. Um, but no, I thought that the train wreck itself was was magnificent and i thought there was actually a lot of really awesome like little tracking shots where they lasted for a long time where they like ran alongside the kid and you see all this stuff flying around it was completely ludicrous that they survived right uh, but uh i really all the action was great and the, the attack on the bus it just it, it really satiated my desire for like a summer ride Whoops. that i felt like i hadn't gotten hey hey craig what you were you were gonna say something there a minute ago oh well well i was just gonna say about the um the the, uh, the shot where the everything starts firing on each other. I thought that was one of the better shots of the film because it kind of pans out, and you see the pandemonium, but you also see these kids just kind of pell mell running, jumping over fences, and kind of just scrambling around. And it it is a miracle that nobody you know took a stray bullet. But also, I wanted to mention that train uh, wreck too because I thought it was I thought it was over the top in a, in a way that that kind of melded well with what was going on. Cause it's coming off what I think is the best scene of the film where they're making, where they're shooting the scene in their film. And it's, it, it's so suspenseful because they, they want to get the shot as the train's going through. So you've got that suspense. And also you've got the main kid, Joe, I guess is his name. He's, he sees the truck coming down, but he's not putting down the, the, uh, the mic boom. And, but he wants to look over, but he's, you know, he's, maintaining his grip on the microphone and he doesn't want to give up this one chance as this shot for this scene so but he's looking over at that truck just about to run into the train i thought that right there was just like top-notch filmmaking and then it you just bookend it with this way over the top very loud train wreck that never seems to end yeah i'm with you all of that moment too yeah if they had killed the kids it would have been the movie would have ended on a high note <laughs> right <laughs> Um, really dark. Yeah. Really dark. <laughs> you like dark short movies. Unspielbergian, yeah. 
Well, guys, anybody uh, anybody have any other points they want to they want to raise before we wrap up? Do we want to do the lens flare conversation? Does that need to be <laughs> full that, lens flare? That That's going to be well, a separate. I just thought podcast. that the one when when they showed kind of the establishing shot of the train station. I honest, that was I think the first time that it really hit with the lens flare, and I honestly for a second had trouble uh, comprehending what I was looking at. The lens, yeah, me too. It's like a straight line all the way across the screen at the top, and then there was more at the bottom. I was like, "Oh, here he is. Here it is." But uh, yeah, I think it's a nice touch. But he just he doesn't need to overdo it because it's gonna, it is going to become kind of a parody of itself. No, I think that the, the, the lens flare was almost self-referential this time around, especially in the closing shot of the movie when it fades to black. There's just this blue streak on the top half of the screen. And it, I mean, he's in total control of how he uses his lens flare. And I mean, do you guys not think that that was completely on purpose? Because he, look, he he knows what people said about Star Trek, and that was one of the main criticisms or one of the main points people made about that movie. Yeah, I don't think it's a criticism. I think uh, I think it's something. It's a decision he makes to add life to it, and. I, I know I keep talking about how we shouldn't compare him to Spielberg, but I think it, it's a lot like in Spielberg movies where if there's ever a light coming in through a window, that room is filled with fog. There's like so much atmosphere and fog just for that light to kind of cut through and, and let us kind of see it. And it just seems like one of those kind of directorial decisions where it's just like something to kind of liven up the frame and, and hint that there's all kinds of stuff going on outside the frame. But I definitely noticed it. Hey, I wanted to mention something about the uh, what what the alien ate. Is it, I mean, am I incorrect in thinking that the alien primarily ate only the soldiers that had had him in captivity for those so many decades, or was he? Because I know he was chomping on a leg of somebody, but who's to say that's not a soldier? I don't know. I think it's he was un- eating everybody. Yeah, I think. Yeah, he, yeah. He he was just grabbing people, and it's a snack for later. And uh, but no, aren't they feeding him in the in the old film where we see the um, where we see the the scientist is isn't he film isn't he feeding him like a like a rib cage of like like I'm, I'm guessing like he's giving him like beef ribs or something like a leg of lamb right or something. it's like from the uh, Flintstones opening right yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay. Yeah, we're, so we're clear on that. We're clear on well, that. What do you Ben, you talked about uh, how ludicrous it was that some people didn't die. How about the, uh, the, the, the middle school teacher, the scientist, the biology teacher, who drives his truck head on <laughs> into a speeding train, yet they walk up on him and he has survived the collision? He's only and killed he by that, lethal injection. Right. He's yeah. got that revolver, but he yeah. doesn't use it. Yeah, true. And uh, how about the weirdo who, you know, he, he he gives him the lethal injection, the weirdo who steals the locket and puts it in his pocket. What was he going to do with that? Like, that's the one thing he took from the kid. It's like, I'll take this locket and give it, you know, and wear it or give it to my wife or something. <laughs> or worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I just want to say I, just, I have one little final thought, and that's, uh, you know, as I was watching it, especially the scenes, the scenes that really worked for me, I, I just thought to myself, you know, I wish that that at least one, if not more directors would try this every year. You know, why, why haven't we been doing this all along? Why haven't we been seeing um, movies like this where we try and ground these these movies in? Because people call it a failure if it makes up its budget in opening weekend. Oh, snap. No, no, it's no. This budget has nothing to do with it. What failed for me 
Uh, well, I know, but that's what I'm what saying. What failed for me personally is J.J. Abrams sitting around with his little buddies. He probably hired Orchie and Kurtzman to come in there and say, God, I don't know, guys, I've hit a wall. What if we make the alien psychic? Yeah, catch this Nerf ball. You know, no, that's not good. That's cheating the audience. That's cheating yourself. That's cheating the the great idea that you've come up with, the great concept you come up with. But I, I really, you know, this movie for me is in the plus column. It, it I give it like a solid B plus. And I, I really, I wish J.J. Abrams would try another one like this. There's no shame in trying to recreate uh, this kind of era, this kind of feeling. And I, I really hope more people do it. I'm going to see the movie again. Because I really did have fun. Um, the only I had problems with the alien itself, the District Nine esque, him having to get back to his home planet and us uh, having to feel sympathy for it. The psychic connection; Th- those are the problems that I had, and that's squarely on J.J. Abrams. But you know, everything I liked about that movie, sh- uh, you should give. I should give credit to J.J. Abrams as well. So while I'm torn, I still enjoyed the movie overall. Yeah, I, I agree, Graham. He de- he deserves both both sides of it because. You, you're, you're dropping some blame on Orchie and Kurtzman, which I'm all for hitting them up anytime you can, but I, I don't think their names are anywhere on this movie. They wrote Star Trek. That was a really good script. Yeah, that's <laughs> fine. A, that's a, fine. A fantastic hook that it will, it will justify that movie's existence. It'll, har- it'll be up. hard for them to redeem themselves no matter how many Star Treks they make. At this point, what have they done wrong otherwise? What did they do? The, the, Transformers? Uh, the Transformers movies. Didn't they do? Oh, they did. Okay. Yeah. They did Transformers. Hey, the, okay. The All fact right. that uh, the okay. alien requires um, like car engines and microwaves and whatnot to get his ship going, do you find that like an homage or more of a copycat of ET using the household items to phone home? That's a good point. Does he really require them? I don't know. Again, he sucked them up onto the water tower. Isn't it all just to create some sort of electromagnetic activity to get all the little cubes to gather together? That's what I thought, Stark. I thought he's trying to get the cubes back. Ugh, God, you're telling still me might too much. Be- like, seriously, this exposition is <laughs> no, so ridiculous, man. I don't need to know the details of this well, alien. I, I do know that's one thing. The whole thing. point of the, but, the script, but, though, again, is that it gives you the clues to kind of talk about it later. Well, why don't talk about the movie later? With a wrench under the, the, under the car, you know, like, fixing something, like t- you know, tightening a lug nut in his ship or something like that. I just thought it was ridiculous. Don't show me the alien. Honestly, I mean, if, if you're going to be that mysterious about it in the larger story and the larger themes here fall uh, in line with the kids and the father or there is no payoff, just don't show me the alien. Just, uh, you know, let that activity take place. But all I want to see are the, you know, the Air Force guys and everybody else fighting it and have that be off screen like it was for most of the movie. Really, that payoff did nothing for me. And when that kid came face to face with it, especially, I felt like the film lost me. I just didn't need to see it. And I think that if it carries that air of mystery throughout the entire thing, you have a stronger film, especially if you keep your focus on what really matters here. And that's the people. Yeah, I feel like the the storyline of the kids and the alien did not merge nearly as well as the white cubes merged into forming his spaceship. Uh-huh. Furthermore, <laughs> furthermore, if you take away the alien and maybe just say that the water tower was contaminated, I think you've got a better storyline. Yeah. All right. Well, guys. Yeah. All right. Well, guys, thank you for uh, thank you for joining me for this. This has been this has been a, an excellent and fitting return for the roundtable. I think. And uh, 
we'll we'll pro- hopefully we'll we'll have something else worth um, worth doing another roundtable podcast about later this summer. Felicity and actually, there's set. <laughs> the, the, the Felicity box set, yeah. Well, yeah, there, and there's there's some discussion out there right now already about uh, us possibly bringing you the ultimate self indulgent uh, roundtable podcast, which will be a, uh, potentially a roundtable on Midnight in Paris, which uh, probably nobody but us wants to talk about. But I still I still want to do it. So, um, no, but, Matt. While you were while you were away, uh, disconnected, Craig made a great point, which is uh, they're really you know. This Super 8 and, and really no other movie right now has the kind of uh, the, the word of mouth, the strength of, of buzz that, that Midnight in Paris has. I mean, I, I can I've been hearing about it for weeks and on Twitter and it's just uh, it's amazing. Well, good. I mean, I, look, I hope I hope that uh, people are absolutely clamoring for it when we do our Midnight in Paris roundtable. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, so look forward to that and guys thanks again for uh, for joining me for this I've really enjoyed it yeah thank you, thank you.